Part Three of A Spaceship Named McGuire by Randall Garrett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Three. The restaurant off the lobby was just like the lobby and the corridors outside, a big room hollowed out of the metal of the asteroid. The walls had been painted to prevent rusting, but they still bore the roughness left by the sunbeam that had burnt them out. We sat down at a table, and a waiter brought over a menu. The place wouldn't be classed higher than a third-rate café on Earth, but on Ceres it's considered one of the better places. The prices certainly compare well with those of the best New York or Moscow restaurants, and the price of meat which has to be shipped from Earth is—you should pardon the gag—astronomical. That didn't bother me. Steaks for two would go right on the expense account. I mentally thanked Mr. Ravenhurst for the fine slab of beef when the waiter finally brought it. While we were waiting, though, I lit a cigarette and said, You're awfully quiet, Jack. Am I? Men are funny. Is that meant as a conversational gambit or an honest observation? Observation. I mean, men are always complaining that girls talk too much. But if a girl keeps her mouth shut, they think there's something wrong with her. Mm-hmm. And you think that's a paradox or something?" She looked puzzled. Isn't it? Not at all. The noise a jackhammer makes isn't pleasant at all, but if it doesn't make that noise, you figure it isn't functioning properly, so you wonder why. Out of the corner of my eye I had noticed a man wearing the black and gold union suit of Ravenhurst's security guard coming toward us from the door using the gliding shuffle that works best under low G. I ignored him to listen to Jack Ravenhurst. "'That has all the earmarks of a dirty crack,' she said. The tone of her voice indicated that she wasn't sure whether to be angry or to laugh. "'Hello, Miss Ravenhurst. Hi, Oak.' Colonel Brock had reached the table. He stood there, smiling his rather flat smile while his eyes looked us both over very carefully. He was five feet ten, an inch shorter than I am, and lean almost to the point of emaciation. His scarred, hard-bitten face looked as though it had gotten that way when he tried to kiss a crocodile. "'Hello, Brock,' I said. "'What's new?' Jack gave him a meaningless smile and said, "'Hello, Colonel.' She was obviously not very impressed with either of us. "'Mind if I sit?' Brock asked. We didn't, so he sat. "'I'm sorry I missed you at the spaceport,' Brock said seriously, but I had several of my boys there with their eyes open. He was quite obviously addressing Jack, not me. "'It's all right,' Jack said. "'I'm not going anywhere this time.' She looked at me and gave me an odd grin. "'I'm going to stay home and be a good girl this time around.' Colonel Brock's good-natured chuckle sounded about as genuine as the ring of a lead nickel. "'Oh, you're no trouble, Miss Ravenhurst.' "'Thank you, kind sir. You're a poor liar.' She stood up and smiled sweetly. "'Will you gentlemen excuse me for a moment?' We would, and did. Colonel Brock and I watched her cross the room and disappear through a door. Then he turned to look at me, giving me a wry grin and shaking his head a little sadly. So you got saddled with Jack the Ripper, eh, Oak? Is she that bad? His chuckle was harsher this time, and had the ring of truth. 
You'll find out. Oh, I don't mean she's got the morals of a cat or anything like that. So far as I know, she's still waiting for Mr. Wright to come along. Drugs? I asked. Liquor? A few drinks now and then. Nothing else, Brock said. No, it's none of the usual things. It isn't what she does that counts. It's what she talks other people into doing. She's a convincer. That sounds impressive, I said. What does it mean? His hard face looked wolfish. I ought to let you find out for yourself. But no, that wouldn't be professional courtesy, and it wouldn't be ethical. Brock, I said tiredly, I have been given more runarounds in the past week than Mercury has had in the past millennium. I expect clients to be cagey, to hold back information, and to lie. But I didn't expect it of you. Give. He nodded brusquely. As I said, she's a convincer, a talker. She can talk people into doing almost anything she wants them to. For instance? Like, for instance, getting all the patrons at the Bali to do a snake dance around the corridors in the altogether. The series police broke it up, but she was nowhere to be found. He said it so innocently that I knew he'd been the one to get her out of the mess. And the time, he continued, that she almost succeeded in getting a welder named Plotkin elected hereditary czar of Ceres. She'd have succeeded, too, if she hadn't made the mistake of getting Plotkin himself up to speak in front of his loyal supporters. After that, everybody felt so silly that the movement fell apart. He went on, reciting half a dozen more instances of the girl's ability to influence people without winning friends. None of them were new to me. They were all on file in the Political Survey Division of the United Nations Government of Earth, plus several more which Colonel Brock either neglected to tell me or wasn't aware of himself. But I listened with interest. After all, I wasn't supposed to know any of these things. I am just a plain, ordinary, confidential expediter. That's what it says on the door of my office in New York, and that's what it says on my license. All very legal and very dishonest. The Political Survey Division is very legal and very dishonest, too. Theoretically, it is supposed to be nothing but a branch of the System Census Bureau. It is supposed to do nothing but observe and tabulate political trends. The actual fact that it is the Secret Service branch of the United Nations government is known to relatively few people. I know it because I work for the Political Survey Division. The PSD already had men investigating both Ravenhurst and Thurston, but when they found out that Ravenhurst was looking for a confidential expediter for a special job, they shoved me in fast. It isn't easy to fool sharp operators like Colonel Brock, but so far I'd been lucky enough to get away with it by playing ignorant but not stupid. The stakes were brought, and I mentally saluted Ravenhurst, as I had promised myself I would. Then I rather belatedly asked the Colonel if he'd eat with us. No, he said with a shake of his head. No, thanks. I've got to get things ready for her visit to the Viking plant tomorrow. Oh? Hiding something? I asked blandly. He didn't even bother to look insulted. No, just have to make sure she doesn't get hurt by any of the machinery, that's all. Most of the stuff is automatic, and she has a habit of getting too close. I guess she thinks she can talk a machine out of hurting her as easily as she can talk a man into standing on his head. 
Jack Ravenhurst was coming back to the table. I noticed that she'd fixed her hair nicely and put on makeup. It made her look a lot more feminine than she had while she was on the flitterboat. Well, she said as she sat down, have you two decided what to do with me? Colonel Brock just smiled and said, I guess we'll have to leave that up to you, Miss Ravenhurst. Then he stood up. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'll be about my business. Jack nodded, gave him a quick smile, and fell to her stake with the voraciousness of an unfed chicken in a wheat bin. Miss Jacqueline Ravenhurst evidently had no desire to talk to me at the moment. On Ceres, as on most of the major planetoids, a man's home is his castle, even if it's only a hotel room. Raw nickel iron, the basic building material, is so cheap that walls and doors are seldom made of anything else, so a hotel room is more like a vault than anything else on Earth. Every time I go into one of the hotels on Ceres or Eros, I get the feeling that I'm either a bundle of gold certificates or a particularly obstetrous prisoner being led to a medieval solitary confinement cell. They're not pretty, but they're solid. Jack Ravenhurst went into her own room after flashing me a rather hurt smile that was supposed to indicate her disappointment in not being allowed to go nightclubbing. I gave her a big brotherly pat on the shoulder and told her to get plenty of sleep since we had to be up bright and early in the morning. Once inside my own room, I checked over my luggage carefully. It had been brought there from the spaceport, where I checked it before going to Ravenhurst's Raven Rest on orders from Ravenhurst himself. This was one of several rooms that Ravenhurst kept permanently rented for his own uses, and I knew that Jack kept a complete wardrobe in her own rooms. There were no bugs in my luggage, neither sound nor sight-spying devices of any kind. Not that I would have worried if there had been. I just wanted to see if anyone was crude enough to try that method of smuggling a bug into the apartment. The door chime pinged solemnly. I took a peek through the door camera and saw a man in a bellboy's uniform holding a large traveling case. I recognized the face, so I let him in. The rest of your luggage, sir? he said with a straight face. Thank you very much, I told him. I handed him a tip and he popped off. This stuff was special equipment that I hadn't wanted Ravenhurst or anybody else to get his paws into. I opened it carefully with a special key, slid a hand under the clothing that lay on top for camouflage, and palmed the little detector I needed. Then I went around the room whistling gently to myself. The nice thing about an all-metal room is that it's impossible to hide a self-contained bug in it that will be of any use. A small, concealed broadcaster can't broadcast any farther than the walls, so any bug has to have wires leading out of the room. I didn't find a thing. Either Ravenhurst kept the room clean, or somebody was using more sophisticated bugs than any I knew about. I opened the traveling case again and took out one of my favorite gadgets. It's a simple thing, really, a noise generator. But the noise it generates is not random noise. Against a background of white, purely random noise, it is possible to pick out a conversation, even if the conversation is below the noise level, simply because conversation is patterned. But this little generator of mine was non-random. 
It was the multiple recording of ten thousand different conversations, all meaningless, against a background of white noise. Try that one on your differential analyzers. By the time I got through, nobody could tap a dialogue in that room, barring, as I said, bugs more sophisticated than any the United Nations knew about. Then I went over and tapped on the communicating door between my room and Jack Ravenhurst's. There was no answer. I said, Jack, I'm coming in. I have a key. She said, Go away. I'm not dressed. I'm going to bed. Grab something quick, I told her. I'm coming in. I keyed open the door. She was no more dressed for bed than I was, unless she made a habit of sleeping in her best evening togs. Anger blazed in her eyes for a second. Then that faded, and she tried to look all sweetness and light. I was trying on some new clothes, she said innocently. A lot of people might have believed her. The emotional field she threw out, encouraging utter belief in her every word, was as powerful as any I'd ever felt. I just let it wash past me and said, Come into my room for a few minutes, Jack. I want to talk to you. I didn't put any particular emphasis into it. I didn't have to. She came. Once we were both inside my shielded room, with the walls vibrating with ten thousand voices and a hush area in the center, I said patiently, Jack, I personally don't care where you go or what you do. Tomorrow you can do your vanishing act and have yourself a ball, for all I care. But there are certain things that have to be done first. Now sit down and listen. She sat down, her eyes wide. Evidently nobody had ever beaten her at her own game before. Tonight you'll stay here and get some sleep. Tomorrow we go for a tour of Viking, first thing in the morning. Tomorrow afternoon, as soon as I think the time is ripe, you can sneak off. I'll show you how to change your appearance so you won't be recognized. You can have all the fun you want for twenty-four hours. I, of course, will be hunting high and low for you, but I won't find you until I have finished my investigation. On the other hand, I want to know where you are at all times, so that I can get in touch with you if I need you. So no matter where you are, you'll keep in touch by phoning Banning 6226 every time you change location. Got that number? She nodded. Banning 6226, she repeated. Fine. Now, Brock's agents will be watching you, so I'll have to figure out a way to get you away from them, but that won't be too hard. I'll let you know at the proper time. Meanwhile, get back in there, get ready for bed, and get some sleep. You'll need it. Move. She nodded rather dazedly, got up and went to the door. She turned, said good night in a low, puzzled voice, and closed the door. Half an hour later, I quietly sneaked into her room just to check. She was sound asleep in bed. I went back to my own room and got some sack time myself. "'It's a pleasure to have you here again, Miss Ravenhurst,' said Chief Engineer Midgard. "'Anything in particular you want to see this time?' He said it as though he actually enjoyed taking the boss's teenage daughter through a spacecraft plant. Maybe he did at that. He was a paunchy, graying man in his sixties who had probably been a rather handsome lady-killer for the first half-century of his life, but he was approaching middle age now, which has a predictable effect on the tele-idol type. Jack Ravenhurst was at her regal best. 
with the kind of noblesse oblige that would bring worshipful gratitude to the heart of any underling. Oh, just a quick run through on whatever you think would be interesting, Mr. Midgard. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Midgard allowed as how he had a few interesting things to show her, and the party, which also included the watchful and taciturn Colonel Brock, began to make the rounds of the Viking plant. There were three ships under construction at the time, two cargo vessels and a good-sized passenger job. Midgard seemed to think that every step of spacecraft construction was utterly fascinating, for which, bully for him, but it was pretty much of a drag as far as I was concerned. It took three hours. Finally he said, uh, Would you like to see the McGuire Seven? Why, yes, of course she would. So we toddled off to the new ship, while Midgard kept up a steady line of patter. We think we have all the computer errors out of this one, Miss Ravenhurst. A matter of new controls and safety devices. We feel that the trouble with the first six machines was that they were designed to be operated by voice orders by any qualified human operator. The trouble is that they had no way of telling just who was qualified. The brains are perfectly capable of distinguishing one individual from another, but they can't tell whether a given individual is a space pilot or a janitor. In fact, I marked the salient points in his speech, the MGYR-7 would be strictly a one-man ship. It had a built-in dog attitude, friendly toward all humans, but loyal only to its master. Of course, it was likely that the ship would outlast its master, so its loyalties could be changed, but only by the use of special switching keys. The robotics boys still weren't sure why the first six had gone insane, but they were fairly certain that the primary cause was the matter of too many masters. The brilliant biophysicist Asinon, who promulgated the three laws of robotics in the last century, had shown in his writings that they were unattainable ideals, that they only told what a perfect robot should be, not what a robot actually was. The first law, for instance, would forbid a robot to harm a human being, either by action or inaction. But as Asinon showed, a robot could be faced with a situation which allowed for only two possible decisions, both of which required that a human being be harmed. In such a case, the robot goes insane. I found myself speculating what sort of situation, what sort of Asinon paradox had confronted those first six ships, and whether it had been by accident or design, not that the McGuire robots had been built in strict accord with the laws of robotics, that was impossible on the face of it, but no matter how a perfectly logical machine is built, the human mind can figure out a way to goof it up because the human mind is capable of transcending logic. The McGuire ship was a little beauty, a nice sleek needle capable of atmospheric as well as spatial navigation, with a mirror-polished barrel-blue surface all over the sixty-five feet of her, or his, length. It was standing upright on the surface of the planetoid, a shining needle in the shifting sunlight limbed against the star-filled darkness of space. We looked at it through the transparent viewport, and then took the flexible tube that led to the airlock of the ship. The ship was just as beautiful inside as it was outside, 
neat, compact, and efficient. The control room, if such it could be called, was like no control room I'd ever seen before, just an acceleration couch and observation instruments. Midgard explained that it wasn't necessary to be a pilot to run the ship. Any person who knew a smattering of astro-navigation could get to his destination by simply telling the ship what he wanted to do. Jack Ravenhurst took in the whole thing with wide-eyed interest. "'Is the brain activated, Mr. Midgard?' she asked. "'Oh, yes. We've been educating him for the past month, pumping information in as rapidly as he could record it and index it. He's finished with that stage now. We're just waiting for the selection of a test pilot before the final shakedown cruise." He was looking warily at Jack as he spoke, as if he were waiting for something. Evidently he knew what was coming. "'I'd like to talk to him,' Jack said. "'It's so interesting to carry on an intelligent conversation with a machine.'" End of Part 3